I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rare Extra. Despite a growing number of diagnostic tools, it still takes an average of six years after symptom onset for a patient with a rare disease to receive an accurate diagnosis. A recent report from the pharmaceutical company Takeda identifies three priority policy reforms designed to address the barriers patients with rare and genetic conditions face in getting a diagnosis. The report, reducing time to diagnosis for People Living with Rare Diseases, a conversation on U.S. policy opportunities, offers solutions that are designed to address persistent and long-standing barriers that contribute to an ongoing cycle of missed or delayed diagnosis and treatment for patients. We spoke to Takeda Senior Vice President of U.S. Rare Disease, Cheryl Schwartz, and RareX CEO Charlene Sun-Rigby about the report the recommendations it makes, and what it will take to turn these ideas into action. Cheryl, Charlene, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. We're going to talk about a recent report from Takeda on the Diagnostic Odyssey for Rare Disease Patients and its proposals for reducing the time to a diagnosis. Cheryl, perhaps we can begin with the problem. Why is it difficult for rare disease patients to get a diagnosis? Well, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to speak today on this this really important topic. Um, You know, I think, of course, a big part of the challenge of diagnosing a rare disease is that many healthcare providers don't actually have firsthand experience with these diseases because they're just so uncommon. It's kind of like the proverbial needle in a haystack. Um, Also, Often symptoms of rare diseases can actually resemble those of more common conditions. So for example, in some childhood rare diseases like MPS2 or Hunter's disease, as an example, initial symptoms can look more like benign childhood disorders like hernias or hearing loss. And all too often this can result in either an incorrect or a significantly delayed diagnosis. But at the same time, there's also systemic barriers that patients face um, when it comes to what we call this diagnostic odyssey or journey that's associated with rare diseases. So even though we've seen really incredible advancements in genetic testing and diagnostics, it still kind of amazingly takes, on average, 17 interactions across the healthcare system. And we talk about this in the white paper and up to six years to get a rare disease diagnosis. And there are some disease areas that we work on here at Takeda, um, areas like hereditary angioedema, as an example, where we've actually heard stories of patients living without a diagnosis for far longer than that, you know, even up to decades in some cases. So unfortunately, this is a pretty common challenge for the many millions of Americans that are living with a rare disease. What's the consequence of that delay? What, what does this mean for patients and their families? Now, of course, you know, a protracted path to a diagnosis unfortunately also means delays in receiving care and and the treatment that can be life-altering or even potentially life-saving. 
Um, you know, in some cases, rare diseases can be degenerative. So you know, a delay in a treatment can actually lead to a decline in physical functioning or neurocognitive functioning. In other cases, it can really significantly impact the quality of life for patients and their families. Um, you know, I, as a parent, I often try to imagine what that must be like, you know, going through this diagnostic odyssey with your kid and not knowing what's wrong with them and, and living with that and, and the stress of that um, within your family system and your community. And then there's also this broader societal issue beyond, you know, the individual impact of the, the economic impact of rare disease, um, both at the family level and at the societal level. You know, there are thousands of rare diseases. So even though we talk about this concept of rare, sometimes we don't really fully appreciate that there's an estimated 30 million Americans, that's one in 10 people that live with, with a rare disease. So while individual diseases could be rare or even ultra rare, um, you know, on aggregate, a recent study by the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases found that the total economic burden of rare diseases in the U.S. approached $1 trillion in 2019. And that's in addition to the really significant toll that it takes on the individual, family, and community level as well. So, um, you know, really the consequence of this delay is significant. Well, what was the idea behind this report? How did Decada come to focus on this issue and, and what's it trying to do? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we've, at Decada, we've been working in the area of rare disease for many, many years. And, you know, we have a very strong commitment to rare disease communities, but that commitment expands beyond the development of innovative new treatments to working with partners globally to do a few things, to, to reduce barriers, uh, to improve the diagnostic journey, and ultimately, our goal is to reduce the complexity and the time to diagnosis and treatment so that people can have the best possible outcomes. So calling attention to these issues that are outlined in the report and that you know many of us who work in the rare disease area grapple with every day was really the intent of the white paper and ultimately why we think it's so important to work with healthcare stakeholders and institutions, with patients and advocacy groups in the rare disease space on very actionable policy changes that we believe can have a real and lasting impact on improving um, the situation overall. The report identifies what it calls three opportunities for high impact solutions. I'd like to walk through each of those. The first of these is widespread and equitable access to genetic screening. We've got newborn screening tests that can identify rare disease at birth, but in many cases, what test uh, an infant may receive depends on what state a child's born in. And even then, there are far more diseases that can be detected today than these tests actually seek to identify. What can be done to address this gap? Yes, the, the lack of equitable access to genetic screening options, you know, both at an early age in terms of newborn screening and also, you know, further on into adulthood is a big barrier for a lot of people with undiagnosed conditions in this space. Um, you know, this is, you know, we know absolutely that screening newborns, for example, can help to save lives and improve the quality of life um, by helping to support early diagnosis and treatment. Um, and at the federal level, um, there's something called the RUSP, which is the Recommended Uniform Screening Panel, which sets these national recommendations for conditions that should be screened for at birth. And I, this is something I didn't know until I started working in the area of rare, rare disease is that actually every state actually implements its own newborn screening program independently. So they make their own decision at a statewide level 
on what to screen for, you know, using the recommendations, but this can create, you know, variability geographically in terms of the type of screenings and an inherent disparity in terms of access uh, and care on a state by state level. Um, so that's something that, you know, really um, it has a big impact in terms of um, uh, the, the, the level of screening that, that can be expected um, at a state by state level. But, you know, beyond that, it's not just about newborn screening, although that's certainly a critically important component. You know, even in older patients, you know, certainly there's, you know, can be a lack of awareness or a lack of access or funding for genomic screening or even genetic counseling um, that can make it really difficult to identify later onset conditions. Um, I think this is especially exacerbated in underserved populations or communities of color, you know, who might already be facing um, underlying challenges to accessing even routine health screenings because of the inequities that exist within our, our healthcare system more broadly. So I think, you know, expanding federal requirements for genetic screening, um, certainly including newborn screening and, and genomic sequencing and ensuring some consistency across the states would help to expand, you know, our knowledge base, our understanding of rare diseases. It would certainly be a source of rich data and information to guide uh, future uh, decision-making and, and ultimately would help improve the standard of care for patients. So, you know, our vision certainly as that some, one that we share within the rare disease community is a future where genetic screening is available and accessible um, for all individuals and families um, uh, who need it. We've seen compelling evidence that the use of whole genome sequencing for children suspected of having a rare genetic disease can be cost-effective and life-saving. What will it take to expand access to this type of testing? I mean, you know, it's funny. I think um, any of us who've really interacted with the healthcare system in this country know that any kind of specialized care, you know, can be, um, you know, really fragmented, um, you know, even with the advancement of new technologies like you know, um, whole genome sequencing as an example, which is really you know, such an amazing tool at our disposal to be able to help with diagnosis. Um, you know, I think that there's a, a few different areas that we need to focus on to make this more um, accessible. Um, I think one is, you know, um, really making sure that we have uh, the right sort of policies and funding in place to support um, genetic testing or sequencing. Um, I think the other one is to make sure that we have specialized training and awareness of healthcare providers um, to make sure that they understand when and how to access these technologies. Um, and then there's other kind of ancillary areas that are around um, issues like privacy, um, around making sure that that information can be used appropriately um, to guide clinical decision making, but also to aid in sort of the, the more holistic um, and aggregation of data um, across these rare diseases. So I think that there's a, a variety of different things that have to ha come together to make this more accessible. I think the technology is there. It's how we support and enable that technology moving forward. The report also calls for investment in centralized and specialized rare disease care. This envisions the creation of centers of excellence and networks of care. Can you explain what these are? Yeah, you know, centers of excellence, I think, are, are pretty variable in the rare disease space. Um, you know, certainly, um, you know, in a rare disease setting, um, 
it's more important than, you know, than really anything else to make sure that uh, families and patients have access to information and, and not just information, but help to navigate and coordinate a really complex network of medical specialties um, and venues to be able to coordinate their care. Um, now, I think that this idea of centralized medical expertise, either through a clinical center of excellence or a dedicated network of care, those things have been shown to really help support a better standard of you know, evidence-based care for patients with rare diseases. You know, we've definitely seen this work more consistently in more prevalent um, rare disease areas like hemophilia, as an example. Um, we, there has been sort of this development of something called HTCs, hemophilia treatment centers, which do kind of soup to nuts all of the care associated with a hemophilia patient. And that's been really successful in terms of helping to manage care and outcomes. But we definitely need more continued focus on this for other rare conditions that require that level of really specialized training and care coordination. Um, so one really good example of that, you know, is the Rare Disease Institute at Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C., which is a center of excellence for rare genetic diseases. Um, I think, you know, in addition to really highly individualized patient care in the rare disease setting, one also really exciting initiative um, that RDI has been working on is a collaboration uh, between Children's National, NORD, and Decada to support something that's called the Rare Disease Clinical Activity Protocol Program. We call it RARECAP for short, because it's a very <laughs> kind of a mouthful. And that supports a system that helps to really aggregate and curate uh, data and clinical protocols that will hopefully help to standardize the process of diagnosis and care for patients with some of these rare diseases. Um, so, you know, I think that these, this idea of centralized care, um, a, you know, very specialized training will really help not just to advance our understanding of these diseases, the evolution of our protocols and our ongoing research, but also help to kind of orient people individually through the care process so that they get the best outcomes possible. Well, how does this qualitatively change the approach to care for someone with a rare disease? Yeah, I think it could be different for everyone. You know, certainly on an individual level, it could mean, you know, you're not wasting as much time navigating a fragmented health system. Um, but instead, you're you're getting more quickly to, to that diagnosis and treatment that we talked about earlier. You know, in other cases, it could mean having access to the very latest research, to clinical trials, to, you know, updated treatment protocols, um, or, you know, even support services that might not be available, you know, in other venues for, for patients and families um, because of the rarity of these, these disease areas. Um, you know, in the case of the uh, RDI rare cap initiative that I was just talking about, you know, what it could mean for patients is this idea of more real-time curation of centralization of data uh, to inform clinical decision-making um, because, you know, that data is so disparate. It is so, you know, sort of the needle in the haystack. How do you pull that information together to guide decision-making decision and, and speed um, to information and decision-making? What would it take to achieve this and, and how would it address the, the geographic dispersity of patients who may not live nearby uh, a center of excellence? Well, I mean, I think, I, I think and I hope very much that we're on the right path here. I think certainly um, optimizing already established health networks um, and, you know, centers of excellence and clinical expertise 
is one is one area um, and that can help to provide individuals with better options when it comes to this idea of more personalized care and clinical pathways, access to the, the appropriate uh, diagnostic tools and treatments. Um, but I think, you know, maintaining this kind of expertise means, uh, you know, us as a, as a society prioritizing both recruitment and training um, of the right specialized medical professionals that have that rare disease expertise and training. Um, and I also think, you know, we're in a place where technology can certainly help to support this in new ways, whether that is that aggregation and curation of, of data that we talked about. Um, data has, you know, consistently been a very challenging area for us in the rare disease space, just because it is, it's, you know, we just don't have the wealth of data that we have in other kinds of therapeutic areas. Um, but even in the last several years, I think with, you know, the ongoing COVID pandemic, we've seen some pretty remarkable advancements in, you know, the technologies that can help to support information sharing and patient care, telemedicine, um, and other innovations um, that can help to um, address these, these issues around, you know, geographic dispersity of, you know, of, of patients and, and really giving patients access to top care um, for these very specialized um, areas. The final recommendation in the report relates to improvement in the data landscape. What makes this particularly critical in the rare disease space? So, you know, there's definitely a growing uh, a growing body of data and, and clinical evidence on rare disease. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, genomic sequencing, and that has certainly been, you know, a wealth of information for us um, in this area that, you know, um, has, has helped to guide um, new innovation in this space. But, you know, the information is often, you know, again, pretty disparate, um, you know, pretty challenging to access and to consolidate and to interpret um, because it's still, you know, the needle in the haystack situation that we're, that we're dealing with. Um, you know, I think, I think it's complicated by the fact that, you know, we often don't even have this information collected in a consistent way. Like even the terminology that we use hasn't been consistent, right? So, you know, many of these rare diseases haven't been assigned, you know, appropriate ICD-10 CM diagnosis codes, um, or maybe they're misclassified or diagnosed. So, you know, that re results in additional barriers for data tracking and collection. And, you know, certainly we often see that you know, diagnosis is through, um, you know, a, a variety of different tools, but isn't as straightforward as, as it is in other therapeutic areas. So I think um, that's one um, area of focus, which is, I think, helpful for on the data side is making sure that we have consistency um, in how we characterize this, this information um, so that we can build out, you know, more reliable and disease-specific data um, around these, these areas of, of rare disease. Um, I also think, you know, we can really work further on building partnerships to develop more advanced technological solutions. You know, the technology is there. We just have to be able to utilize it appropriately, whether that is, you know, artificial intelligence um, that can help to sort of um, guide us in that uh, diagnostic uh, odyssey that I talked about earlier. Um, or whether that's around this aggregation of data and really looking for patterns and clues in terms of defining treatment paths for patients. You know, and then, I, you know, finally, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but also developing some of the frameworks, you know, from a policy perspective that help to address um, some of the ethical concerns around privacy and data sharing, um, appropriate use of 
um, that clinical information or that that genomic information that I talked about earlier um, will all be, I think, really helpful in supporting um, better use of data in the future. You know, frankly, I think this is a moral imperative. Um, you know, traditionally, healthcare systems and studies have generated these silos of data, and it's been really difficult to bridge or integrate these data sets. I've been very excited over the past few years to see that there's a growing appreciation that these um, data sets can't be maintained as silos if we're going to be able to effectively utilize the data to understand and to diagnose uh, rare disease patients. Um, and it's critical to understand that it's not enough to just bring two data sets together. They, the data needs to be integrated in a way that generates useful insights. Um, so utilizing data standards, you know, for example, human, the human phenotype ontology, HL7, you know, OMIM, you know, Cheryl mentioned ICD-10, you know, even though there are gaps in coverage um, for a lot of rare diseases, these really facilitate structuring and enable the integration of data across these data sets. Um, and to take this a little further, I'll use an example um, from my previous company. So why is standardization valuable in diagnostics? Um, my, my previous company, Fabric Genomics, develops automated uh, artificial intelligence algorithms that relate phenotype and whole genome or whole exome data to accelerate diagnosis for rare disease patients. And uh, you know, a critical input to this is standardized you know, terms, um, specifically standardized phenotype data from the electronic medical record that provides deep phenotyping to facilitate and enable this diagnostic workflow. The report also notes that there have been policy frameworks and programs to encourage rare disease data sharing. Why is this such a concern today in the rare disease world? Yeah. You know, as we have just been talking about, we need to really maximize the utility of available data for rare disease populations and, you know, also do it in a responsible way. Um, understanding patient symptoms, the spectrum of patients, disease progression, all of this type of data really should be pre-competitive. And, you know, in the past and today, not sharing data has really slowed progress in these patient populations. And you know, so it's, I think it's critical that, you know, policy really start to enable, you know, this kind of sharing. Um, rare disease patients often experience high healthcare utilization. And sometimes this is even for procedures that would be unnecessary or even inappropriate with an accurate uh, with an accurate diagnosis, not um, not um, withstanding the delays of getting onto the right treatment path. So broad data sharing will accelerate our ability to understand and more accurately diagnose patients and further to develop meaningful therapies for them. How can we better foster data sharing? Yeah, great question. So consents, you know, which you know start the process for um, a patient to be a, or participant to be able to provide data really should allow for maximal um, utilization of the data. And that means that the consent should allow for usage of the data beyond the initial purpose or the study it was collected for. Um, importantly, this should be done in an, a transparent way for participants. So at RareX, we've developed a consent that allows participants to decide how they want to share their data for example, for any research, for non-commercial research. It also gives them the ability to 
you know, stop sharing their data if they were choo to choose to do that. And this enables patients to be active participants and stakeholders with a real seat at the table in the research process. From a, you know, from a, a, a downstream perspective, um, the data access process for researchers needs to be streamlined and simplified in a responsible way. It really shouldn't take months to request and gain approval for access to data for a project. You know, obviously this delays research progress and we, you know, can even experience situations where researchers may actually lose interest in a project. So we really need to tear down these barriers to research. The report talks about the important role patient organizations can play in changing the rare disease data landscape. What can patient organizations do? Yeah. Well, patient advocates and patient advocacy organizations are critical stakeholders and drivers within the rare disease space. At the most basic level, they are often the first and only people building awareness and initiating researcher interest in a specific rare disease. And you know, that's, of course, because they or their loved ones are impacted by it. It's often through the dedicated efforts of patient organizations that registries and natural history studies are first established. Um, we feel that patient organizations should work to ensure that in these data collection efforts, data standards are employed and that the resulting data is openly accessible for research. Cheryl, the report also talks about collaborations between patient organizations and other stakeholders. What do you think those collaborations should look like and what role do you see them playing in improving the data landscape? Yeah, I think yeah, building upon what Charlene was talking about, in my experience, most often it's the patient organizations um, that are most often at the forefront of not just, you know, advocacy but and change, but in terms of that, that data and information, um, you know, patients and their families and their communities are often, you know, have more information than, than even the researchers themselves. And maybe they're looking at this disease from different angles and different levels of awareness. So I think, you know, first and foremost, you know, as advocates in this space, helping to guide the appropriate, um, uh, collection of information, making sure that we're, that we're holding ourselves accountable, um, to, you know, what these patients are living with every day and that we're collecting the relevant information. Um, you know, sometimes we get so caught up in, you know, like from the uh, drug development process in, in terms of what regulators are requiring. Sometimes we go so far down the path of information that we're collecting to seek a regulatory approval that we're missing really critical information potentially that could guide decision making or care for some of these communities. And so who better to be able to understand that than, than patient organizations? So I think that that's one part. I think the other part is around, you know, really about, again, where Charlene was coming from, this idea of transparency and, and trust. I think, you know, we, people who get involved in the rare disease space do so because they, they have a real passion and commitment to these communities. Um, but we have to make sure that we're operating in a way that we're protecting, you know, confidentiality and privacy, um, but also advancing kind of our, our research objectives and our objectives around, um, you know, advancing treatment. Takeda has laid out uh, an agenda to reduce the time to diagnosis for rare disease patient. What comes next? How do you turn this into action? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a big task. I, I you know, I guess I would come back to that statistic that I mentioned, you know, earlier, which is you know, 30 million Americans or one in 10 people 
live with one or more rare diseases. That's kind of, it's just staggering every time I think about that because it just doesn't fit with the title rare. Um, so it's really important to those 30 million people and to, you know, all of us at Takeda, um, I know to, to Charlene as well, you know, everyone that interacts with these communities every day that we really help to drive action to support the appropriate legislative and regulatory changes at both the federal and the state level to support this idea of reducing time to diagnosis uh, for rare disease patients and their families. So we, we talked today about some of these actionable areas that could help to shorten the time to diagnosis. Um, you know, one is certainly ensuring access to genetic and geno genomic screening. Um, that is an, a wonderful tool that we have at our disposal, but that includes things like expanding access to newborn screening, um, both at the federal level, but also state policymakers are, are a big part of that solution. You know, that could mean advancing legislation or funding to support that enhanced screening um, or new diagnostic tools, but also then to be able to use that that screening and that data to support kind of um, the information that guides us for the future. Um, we're also really focused on this idea of enhancing the appropriate collection, curation and standardization of rare disease data, um, both through the centralized and specialized rare disease care um, through center, centers of excellence, uh, but also by improving the data landscape around rare diseases we were just talking about. Um, so I think that's a really critical uh, piece of the puzzle that needs to continue to be advanced. Um, you know, I think all of these are really important and actionable steps, um, and we're very committed here at Takeda, and you know, within the and within the broader rare disease community to working with partners and, and key stakeholders to advance these kinds of solutions to best support rare disease communities. The report is Reducing Time to Diagnosis for People Living with Rare Diseases, a conversation on U.S. policy opportunities. You can find the report on the Takeda website under the What We Do tab, looking for rare diseases. Cheryl Schwartz, Senior Vice President of Takeda's Rare Disease Business, and Charlene Sung-Rigby, CEO of RareX. Charlene, Cheryl, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. RareX is a collaborative platform for global data sharing and analysis to accelerate treatments for rare disease. RareX is adapting proven technologies and partnering with leading experts to create a federated data analysis platform specifically designed by rare community leaders and scaled to support the diverse and expanding needs of rare disease research, development, and care. To learn more about RareX, go to rare-x.org. This podcast is produced for RareX by the Levine Media Group. Music is courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.